Hello and welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we're going to be talking to Yvette Gravelin. Yvette, hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been far too long. We've been talking for quite a while about having you on. Um, and we're finally getting the delightful opportunity. So we're very, very happy you're here. So we're changing things up at Brain Buzz Podcast. We've gotten a lot of really good critical feedback and we've elected to change the format of our show. I know everybody that's been listening so far is really um, indebted and just really cares about the format of the show. But three episodes in, guess what? We have to switch it up. We have to keep it current here. So we're going to change fresh. things. We're keeping it fresh. We're keeping you on your toes. So there's, it's going to be a different format. And please... Uh, please give us feedback on how you think uh, the format works and, and meshes for your l listening experience. Um, the way that we separate it is essentially the brain and the buzz. So <laughs> more or less, we're getting into the, the heavy duty, talking about the research of, the, of our guests and talking about what they're really interested in, the areas that they're in. And then we're going to take a quick break, a little uh, brain so break. Brain break. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we're trying to tag it. Yep. taking a brain break and then we're gonna come at it and take on the buzz portion of the podcast where we're going to talk about uh popular misconceptions and myths we're going to talk about uh interesting facts that the researcher will bring wants to bring to everybody's attention and then uh talk a little bit about how the researcher got into the area that they're in and why they're so interested in the work they're doing yeah and some personal anecdotes along the way in that second half so we're really excited to have everybody along for the ride um please let us know what you think you can do so by dropping us an email at brainbuzzpodcast.com uh you can send us an email there you can also reach us on twitter facebook uh instagram pretty much any social media platform that you so desire all right and so the the way we're going to start off every podcast is basically we're going to just jump right into it so today we're going to be talking about mind wandering we're going to talk about imagination and dreaming i'm so excited yeah it's gonna I'm be a, really excited it's, it's gonna, it's be, gonna be good <laughs> so uh again thanks yvette for coming on we're super stoked to have you give us a little bit of information on you where you're where you're coming from in the lab that you're coming from and the work that you're doing yeah so okay so i i do research in um the cognitive neuroscience of thought laboratory okay. and i work with kalina Kristoff. we research primarily mind wandering but we're also interested in other types of thoughts um things like dreaming imagination and so on and so forth mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're going to start off every episode essentially with learning objectives. So this is the way that we are addressing this is the same way that we go about teaching courses, essentially, is you want to give everybody the idea of what the main goal of the, of the podcast or what main takeaways are, are going to yeah. be. This, this what episode. are we going to learn throughout this show? Yeah. What is the thing? What are the three things or two things or one thing that we want to actually really get into on any given episode? So uh, with that said, Yvette, what are we going to learn today? Okay, let's see here. <laughs> so we're going to learn about um, how mind-wandering, dreaming, and creative imagination are all connected. So classically, or traditionally, uh, mind-wandering is sort of defined as any kind of thinking that, um, I guess, wanders <laughs> away from the task at hand. So Right, <clears throat> like wavering. Yeah, if, if you are, um, you're focused on some kind of task, like you're attending a, a lecture, you're, you're listening to the professor, mm -hmm. and your mind starts drifting away from the lecture, that would be an example of mind-wandering. <laughs> Although, more recently, um, our lab has started thinking about mind-wandering in terms of some other qualities or other features of mind-wandering, including the fact that uh, mind-wandering tends to involve sort of freely moving thoughts, uh, what's known as spontaneous thought, and um, so it all depends on the definition you want, but mind wandering has different, different, different characteristics. Different, there's different ways of looking at it. I've heard it. I've heard it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because mm -hmm. I most likely am. I've heard it recently referred to as task unrelated thought. Mm -hmm. um, is that what we're talking about here when we talk about mind wandering? Or well, actually, we'll be talking mainly about. Um, freely moving thought or spontaneous thought okay so there's a there's a distinction there that we want to make yeah so there, there's a distinction and and no no one definition is correct mm -hmm. 
but kind of the the idea is to sort of look at thought in a more a more general way actually to sort of um think about it more you can think about it as the stream of consciousness sort of how your your thoughts are naturally unfolding over time that's that's sort of the the definition of mind wandering that we're working with cool excellent fantastic mm -hmm. um so it would be like you're sitting at your desk at work uh you're working on a project of some sort whatever you do for work and suddenly you start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner mm -hmm. would that be that's mind wandering right yeah that would in, be in a nutshell exactly that there a couple ways you can think about it one would be if you were if you were already engaged in some kind of a task mm -hmm. and then suddenly some thought completely unrelated to the task pops into your mind mm -hmm. That is unrelated to the task, but it's also spontaneous. It sort of happens out of nowhere, yeah. right? Right. So that would be an example of mind wandering. Right. But in addition, even if you weren't doing anything, let's say that you're just sitting on the couch and you're just relaxing, um, you could also call a thought that pops into your mind then mind wandering. Mm -hmm. Even if you didn't have any task that you were engaging in, the fact that you had just a thought spontaneously and freely pop into your mind, that would be mind wandering as well. I mean, my thought, whenever mind wandering comes to my head, it's always you're in a lecture or at a talk and five minutes in, they say a word that just kind <laughs> of is like, oh, that's a weird word. And then <laughs> from that, you say, okay, I wonder, actually, that reminds me of this thing that I did two weeks ago. And then it starts to snowball and now you're not paying attention anymore. Mm -hmm. And that mind wandering yeah. for, for, for some people in certain situations can actually be very problematic, I think, mm -hmm. uh, which is if whenever you started talking about mind wandering that got me thinking of that i'm like man i well, mind wander way too much whenever i'm listening to talks uh, i zone out sometimes when you talk <laughs> Thanks, i don't your He's voice such is a charmer too, too charming oh thanks man um okay well let's get into <laughs> let's get into a little bit about how the mechanics work of of actually uh measuring mind wandering then because there's a lot there that just from our quick quick introduction, there's a lot, seems like there's a lot there defining what mind wandering is and how you actually measure it would be um, probably more complex. So how do you measure mind wandering in, in research? Um, we've been using a paradigm where basically participants essentially do nothing. So you just do nothing and you let your, but you do let your thoughts unfold naturally. Okay. And what we do is we, we let people sort of think for a period of t periods of time, and then we intermittently ask them what they were thinking about. And when we do this, we'll give them sort of like a, a scale from say one to six that asks them how freely moving were your thoughts. And if they had, if their if their thoughts were highly freely moving, then this would be we would consider this spontaneous. So if they responded like a anywhere from four to six, this would be spontaneous thought. And if they respond one to three on the scale, we would not consider this spontaneous thought. Okay. So what do you mean by freely moving? So like when you're talking about like freely moving thought is it essentially like, I'm thinking about one thing, I'm thinking about dogs, and then that switches to bears because bears are super related to dogs, and then bears, I think salmon, like how do you define freely moving? <clears throat> okay, so freely moving, um, let's see. It would be it would be defined as like within a given period of time. And now, granted, this is sort of subjective because you sort of pick what 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 period of time, right? Right. But the idea is that so, something that's that's uh, like a freely moving thought sort of just goes from just first of all, it feels sort of naturally moving. Right. It actually feels you didn't premeditate it. You didn't you didn't think about okay, I'm going to think about this thought right now, no. and then you think about it. Mm -hmm. It 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 sort of spontaneously comes into mind, and then it naturally flows from one thing to the next. And sometimes the thought contents are related, and sometimes they aren't. Is that the only way of measuring mind running? Are there other ways that people go about measuring uh, mind wandering? Yes. Um, I would say this, uh, this, this use of scales that I was talking about is mm -hmm. sort of a, a relatively newer way of doing it. I think our lab primarily is, is uh, measuring mind wandering this way, but mm -hmm. um, traditionally it was measured using the SART task, okay. which essentially just assesses um, sort of the frequency with which your mind moves away from the task at hand. Okay. So the SART task is a cognitive tasks that we use quite frequently in the field um, where participants are asked to look at a sequence of numbers and respond to every number um, in a particular way so typically it's the space bar you press the space bar every time you see a number um, except when you see 
I think usually the number three is the one that's used. Um, the idea is that it's a sustained attention to re- uh, sustained attention to response task. Yeah, sustained attention means. to response task. Yeah. It's, oh, it's a bit <laughs> of a time twister, actually. Anyways, yeah. but the idea is that it's an incredibly boring task, and the longer it goes on, the more difficult it is to remain engaged. And mm-hmm. so it's a really effective way of disengaging people from the task at hand and inducing uh, a little bit of uh, mind wandering, I guess, mm-hmm. if I'm using the term. Yeah, I think that's a great description. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And so because I know the work that you guys do, and because you're in cognitive psychology, I know that you guys measure how the brain's functioning during this, right? Mm -hmm. How do you guys go about doing this? Because I believe I have done the SAR task before as a participant. (laughs) I went to a hospital, uh, and they equipped me with a bunch of electrodes into my head and put some glue in my hair. And then I was looking at a, a task that was really, really boring. And Sounds like the SART task to me. <laughs> yeah, sounds and about I, right. I, I, al- I remember it was in the morning. They asked me to come in the morning. I was almost falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not the, what they were going for. But uh, how, would you, how do you guys go about measuring that? And what are you measuring whenever you're, you're assessing the brain? How do you do it? And what are you measuring? Okay. So, um, okay, so in 2009... Uh, Kalina Kristoff, my supervisor, published this great paper that's kind of a kind of a um, hallmark paper in the field, where she actually had people um, engage in the SART task in the fMRI scanner. So what? So what? They're they're basically neuroimaging. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they were doing the task while they were doing neuroimaging. Okay. So what does? Sorry, I I hate to keep interjecting. What is like? What is an fMRI and what is it measuring? So fMRI is taking pictures of your brain. I think that's the most simple response. Okay. What it's actually, the more technical description of what it's measuring, um, it's measuring the ratio of oxygenated to deoxygenated blood Mm -hmm. in response to neural activity. Right. But the key thing is that it's basically taking pictures of your brain. So it tells you that what it can tell you is when you're doing any given task, certain what brain areas um become active right and so an active brain area will both require more oxygenated blood but also deoxygenate it quicker as it's being used yes and um and also another key point is that it's it's relative so it's it's just relative activation so um the if if you were to say when you were in, when you were doing the SART task, or you know, or when your when your mind wandered from the SART task, these specific brain regions, be, you would say, they become more active relative to when your mind didn't wander away from the task, right? right. So it's always relative because really your brain is always active, but mm. it's when certain brain areas become more active that we can correlate them to the task that we're examining. Right. Yeah. We debunk the ten percent myth and. Our second episode. <laughs> yes. yes. So you're not using 10% of your brain. We, no. we know that now. <laughs> um, and so uh, fMRI is, we use a lot of, I mean, in research, we tend to abbreviate everything and anything mm-hmm. at all costs. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the fMRI is a functional magnetic resonance imaging is what, Correct. what it stands for. And yes. I mean, ironically, that doesn't actually tell you much of anything about what you're doing other than the imaging mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. last word there is the only word that mm-hmm. makes any sense taking some picture because <laughs> yeah. i mean when you go in uh, i know me as a child whenever i went in to get any scans like a ct scan an mri or an fmri i had no clue what was going on i knew they were taking pictures of something in my body mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and i assumed it was for a good reason <laughs> mm-hmm. um but i mean from my very basic understanding of your explanation of fmri it's more or less looking at blood flow uh, throughout the brain is that like or oxygenated and deoxygenated blood flow within the brain yeah i guess i guess uh if you think of this sequence of events um something happens <laughs> in in the external environment some what we'd call a stimulus in yeah. research right um either something happens in the external environment or a thought pops into mind mm-hmm. some kind of neural activity there's some kind of neural response that happens this leads to blood flow to that those parts of the brain right but in particular 
there's a change in the amount of what what is called oxygenated to deoxygenated blood when these areas are are more involved in something. Okay. And this uh, this this change in the ratio of oxygenated to deoxygenated blood. Um, this is this is sort of the basis of the what we call the bold signal, okay. which is the blood oxygen level dependent signal, okay. which is just a measure of relative activation in the brain in response to whatever task you want to know the, the brain basis of. Sure. So if you're doing like arithmetics, you're going to see there a different response in your brain versus doing some sort of like verbal task where you have to think of words, right? Exactly. Uh, or something visual, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. there's some really cool... Um, there's some really cool studies where you can actually see like uh, your motor response, mm. and so they'll ask somebody in that in an MR, fMRI scanner to uh, say wiggle their left arm, and as they wiggle their left arm, you can see a corresponding, a nearly corresponding part of their brain activate under this bold signal. Right. So <laughs> bold you can signal. see that you can see the influx of oxygenated or deoxygenated. You can see that transaction within the brain through the fmri right because the when this happens in response to whatever task you want to know the brain basis of mm -hmm. what's essentially happening is the the change in the ratio of oxygenated to deoxygenated blood um, creates a change basically in the magnetic properties of those brain areas and so it's called functional magnetic resonance imaging because it's picking up on the magnetic changes okay. in the brain so it's not actually picking up on neural activity right it's it's, it's, it's the, the magnetic change yes. in the brain interesting exactly. well i exactly. think you unpacked that perfectly because i had no clue now i know yeah. now you know We've now defined and at knowing least is half two the of battle. those words <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yvette we teased the episode by talking about or by saying that we'd be talking about mind-wandering and dreaming and uh, imagination. Uh, and so far, we've done an excellent job talking about mind-wandering. How, how do we relate mind-wandering to dreaming? What is the connection there? Okay, so the connection is that um, mind-wandering or dreaming can be thought of as mind-wandering during sleep. And what I mean by that is that if you think of mind-wandering as a form of thought that sort of emerges spontaneously without effort, that's, that's exactly what dreaming is. And in fact, it turns out that both in terms of your subjective experience, sort of the, the, your, your internal experience of spontaneous thoughts, um, as well as the brain areas that support spontaneous thoughts, there's continuity between mind-wandering and dreaming at, at, at both cognitive and neural levels. Wow. That's really cool. I didn't actually know that. So when you say um, uh, at cognitive and neural levels, do you mind just ensuring that we're on the same page? I don't. I want to make sure that that we understand what we're talking about. So cognitive would be basically your subjective experience. It's it's basically what you really just just how you experience the world on a day to day basis. What what you can report. Mm -hmm. You can say like I'm feeling this way or. I, I'm having mental imagery of this thing, or I'm having this thought. It's sort right. of what, what's reportable. Okay. Um, the neural level would be sort of this the bold response that we talked about. So um, what areas of the brain become more active right. during either dreaming or mind wandering? So, so the, the cognitive aspect is what you can report the morning before, as you wake up. Mm -hmm. when, when, you, when you wake up and you report like, oh, I just had the wildest dream. Exactly. Right? Those are exactly. your cognitive responses. And yes. then your neural is actually, if you were in an fMRI when you were doing that, we could show this, this brain activity going on. Exactly. Right? You can show sort of a, a picture of what's happening in the brain Great. during this thing that you've just reported subjectively. Perfect. Okay. So that, that makes a lot of sense then. So yeah. the, the cognitive and the neural aspects together make a lot of, uh, or they give a lot of more information than just one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's a really important part of what I research and what um, the Christoph Lab researches is we, we try to connect subjective experience with neuroimaging, with the, the brain basis of whatever we're subjectively experiencing. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. What are you trying to, do, to um, figure out with regards to mind wandering and dreaming? So, um, okay, so there are actual sleep researchers mm -hmm. that are waking people up in the middle of the night and examining um, 
using a different type of neuroimaging, EEG, which is basically just measuring brain waves. Electroencephalogram. Right? Exactly. Electroencephalo- uh, electroencephalography, right? Uh, something like that. Say that <laughs> I think 10 I think times that's, really fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. That's why we say EEG every time. Yeah. yeah and, and, and previously, um, before coming to UBC, I worked in some of these sleep labs. And that's, that's actually what I did. That was my job. I stayed up all night. I watched people's brainwaves in real time, and I woke them up for their dreams. And so that tends to What be, are you thinking? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, Drake, please report now. And then you'd, you'd, you'd kind of groggily say what you were, what you were thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Actually, someone said that to us. <laughs> um, true story. First, first participant I had, first participant I had actually said, Fuck you. <laughs> like, you signed up for this. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. He withdrew consent at that moment. You're like, yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so... So that, that's, the most, um, that's the most traditional way to mm-hmm. measure dreams. There's not that many dream labs even in the world. There's, there's a limited number of actual, you know, especially neurobiological dream labs that are also trying to understand, you know, the neural, the brain basis of dreaming. But usually they use EEG. And some labs, very few labs, will also use neuroimaging. And this is, this is sort of, um, this is an area where I think we, we need more of this. We need to see, you can do, for example, you can do neuroimaging of sleep. You can have people fall asleep in the scanner, which is actually very difficult because the scanner is really loud. It makes a really hmm. loud hammering noise. If any of you, have, you, have any of you ever been in a scanner? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's very loud. It's really loud. Yeah. So it's difficult to get people to fall asleep. And which is one of the massive methodological issue. It's it's one of the reasons we don't. One of the re- we don't know actually. We don't fully know the brain basis of dreaming. Nobody knows that to this day. And the reason is because we still are trying to find better methods for how how can we even get people to fall asleep in the scanner. So Yvette, now mm-hmm. a question that I might have would be. We can get people to to sleep by doing all sorts of things to them. We can keep them up for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can give them a cocktail of drugs to make them fall asleep. <laughs> um, but would that, or does that have methodological implications? Does that have real world implications and, and limitations to what you'd be able to extract if we were to do that? Yes, it, it, it absolutely does. In fact, that's, that's the key problem. So um, most labs that have tried to examine even just sleep alone without dreaming, um, they will try to, they'll sleep deprive the subject sometimes for up to 24 hours. And the issue with that is that sleep deprivation actually causes changes in the brain. So right there, you have kind of a confound, that's a confounding variable. You're trying to know what is the brain basis specifically of dreaming. And you want to to know that sort of that pure data, Mm -hmm. right? But if you've sleep deprived the participants, how do you know that the, the brain activity, the brain pictures that you're obtaining, how do you know that it's not just something to do with sleep deprivation? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, is it dreaming or is it that they're sleep deprived? And so actually recently, um, more recently, there's there have been some attempts. It, it's, it's very cutting edge research and not that many people do it. But one person that is trying to do research without sleep depriving participants is um, this guy named Martin Dressler at the Max Planck Institute. And he's done amazing work with lucid dreaming in the scanner. And so um, could you yep. define what lucid dreaming oh. is? Yes. Uh, lucid dreaming is, so we talked about how dreaming was a form of spontaneous thought and it happens without effort. Mm-hmm. Lucid dreaming um, is still spontaneous thought some people define it differently, but the, the key idea is that you can actually exert, well, first of all, you become, you become aware that you're dreaming mm-hmm. while you're dreaming. Right. And then another kind of feature or characteristic of lucid dreaming is that sometimes you can actually control, you can, you can use what we call deliberate constraint in the Christoph lab. You can sort of control the direction of your dreams while you're dreaming them. Mm-hmm. And, and not everybody has these experiences. Some people do. But um, Martin Dressler did some amazing research, uh, one of the only studies in the world that, that actually did this successfully, where he had a, a, someone who lucid dreamed very frequently and was able to actually control the direction of their thoughts while they were in the scanner. And this led to a change in brain activity. And this was decided in advance. The, the, particip- uh, the researchers said, I want you to do this 
in your mind in the scanner, and this will be the signal that you're lucid dreaming. And they did this, and it, it actually worked. Wow. That's so incredible. It, it's crazy. It's, it's, <laughs> so it's cool. like mad science. Yeah. yeah. For, for anyone that's had, I, I had never had lucid dreaming before, and I took a sleep and dreams class, and then we talked about lucid dreaming. Uh, and they had mentioned that there's a way to, there's like certain ways that you can kind of lead yourself to lucid dream. Like you can train yourself to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget honestly the protocol that I did to kind of get myself into that, that mentality. But I think mm-hmm. it was like the half hour before I went to bed, I was like, I'm going to dream tonight mm-hmm. and I'm going to, as soon as I realize that I'm dreaming, that's when I'm going to start to try and change things in my dream. Mm-hmm. And eventually I ended up doing that is very it's a very I believe it it's a very interesting experience uh mm-hmm. knowing that you're dreaming mm. and being able to catch yourself in a moment you're like wait that's that wouldn't actually happen in real life am mm-hmm. i dreaming oh mm-hmm. maybe i am dreaming <laughs> yes i'm dreaming <laughs> and then doing stuff actually actively engaging in your dream it's very yeah. cool yeah it's 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 kind of crazy and some people are really crazy about lucid dreaming that that's not why i got into it i am Mm -hmm. a lucid dreamer i do lucid dream but i don't actually try to do it it just kind of randomly happens Mm -hmm. i'm interested in 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 dreams on their own Mm -hmm. they don't have to be lucid for me to be to be interested (laughs) but but it is interesting when they happen and um Stephen LaBerge, uh, he does he does a lot of the a lot of the primary work on lucid dreaming. If anyone's interested in okay. in that topic, yeah, I mean we can we can definitely link to his work on mm-hmm. uh, on our website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for anybody that's interested in, in engaging oh. in more information on lucid dreaming on all our social media platforms. Yes, <laughs> there there's so many. <laughs> Brainbuzz. We're even on Reddit. Com. Yeah, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's all there. All of them <laughs> taking over. Um, you've got, we've talked a lot about mind wandering up to this point. Uh, and I've, I was really curious when he sent us the document that we asked you to send <laughs> us, uh, to send to us, uh, what you had for us in terms of imagination and how those two things were connected. Okay. Yeah. I understand that these are a lot of concepts <laughs> and it se- they seem like wildly different concepts. Um, but they're actually all integrated in kind of a, a, a more simple way than it may seem. So if, if you think of, so we talked about spontaneous thoughts. We talked about mind wandering and dreaming as sort of uh, freely moving thoughts, mm-hmm. right? And so you can think of this as the dynamics of thoughts. That's what our lab would call it, the, the dynamic view of mind wandering, the, okay. the, the, dyna- yeah, the dynamics of thought, essentially. <laughs> Um, and so, but in addition to thought dynamics, there's something, there's thought contents, the topics that are on your mind. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So outside of, you know, how your thoughts are moving along over time, there's, well, what are you even thinking about? And actually, this is a more intuitive um, definition of thought and, and like to think about what, what is even on your mind. So the reason that imagination comes into the play, in, into play um, there's two reasons. One is that if you think about it, you know, oftentimes when we're, when our thoughts are are wandering, when we're mind wandering, right? Uh, previous work has shown that oftentimes what we're actually thinking about is we're thinking about the past. We're thinking about things that have happened to us in the past. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about our future. You know, what are, what are we going to do tomorrow? What am I going to make for dinner? What am I going to make for dinner tonight? That's the future. It's the it's yeah. the kind of recent future mm-hmm. or the immediate future. Mm-hmm. What, what's my life going to be like five years from now? These really big questions about our own lives, right? Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of things that people think about when they're not engaged in, in some external, externally oriented task. We, we often think about ourselves. We yeah. think about our own lives. Mm-hmm. So these are sort of the topics of mind wandering, the things that are on our mind. And oftentimes this requires, uh, previous research has also shown that this requires imagination, in the sense that we have to kind of take ourselves away from the here and now and the, the present moment. And we have to, we have to sort of, uh, very frequently, we, we imagine scenes and events that have already happened to us, memories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we often think of things that, that will happen or, or goals that we have, like how we imagine our future to be. So these things, people often think of imagination as something that's sort of specific to creative people mm-hmm. and artists. Yeah. But what actually really interests me about imagination is the fact that we use this every day, all of the time. And it's sort of this overlooked aspect of thought. 
Imag- you don't have to be a, a brilliant creative artist to imagine. We do it all of the time whenever we think about our own future. And I think this is a really important tool that sort of propels us in our own lives. Mm-hmm. So that is the connection to mind wandering. But in terms of dreaming, if you think about dreaming, dreaming is sort of like the ultimate form of imagination. It's not often thought about this, but this is the way that I see it. Mm-hmm. When you dream, you're literally unconscious of the external environment. Well, yeah. Sorry, when you sleep, you're, you're literally unconscious of the external environment. You don't have awareness of what's around you. And that is a huge part of what defines the subjective experience of sleep. Right. So what are you left with? Because when we, when we sleep, we often, we, we kind of see in our mind's eye these scenes and dreams and narratives and, and sometimes they're ridiculous, like we're a hero in our dreams and all these things happen. And at the, so the level of subjective experience or the cognitive level that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, this seems a lot like imagination. But it also happens to be the fact that at the neural level, Areas that are more active during sleep, and especially REM sleep. I mean, we dream in all stages of sleep, but in REM sleep, you tend to have very imaginative dreams. And what's REM sleep, sorry? Oh, so, so there's yeah. four stages of sleep, yeah. and one of them is REM. Okay. Is there's there's non-REM one, non-REM two, slow wave sleep, and REM. Okay. And REM tends to be associated with a higher frequency of dreaming. We dream more in REM, and we also tend to have more... Um, Sometimes more imaginative, emotional dreams are sort of action-packed. Okay. Um, and but those but, are your summer blockbuster dreams. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're like right. movies, movies in your mind at night, right? Nice. And it turns out, you know, not only do they seem at the subjective level a lot like imagination, but the same brain areas that become more active during REM sleep happen to be the exact same areas that are active during imagination when we're awake. And so a a pretty big interest of mine in connecting this all together, you know, imagination and spontaneous thought in principle, they're two separate things. But when it comes to mind wandering and dreaming, I like to think about both the, the, the dynamics of thought as well as the contents that are on our mind. And that's, that's how they all tie together. Cool. That's oh. awesome. I, I've never thought of imagination in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that with all of that said, mm-hmm. what are you trying to answer? What is the question that you want to give us an answer to? So, that's a good that that is a good question. In oh, itself. thank you. <laughs> um, you know, ultimately, I I, I love neuroscience. And I simply want to know the ner- the neural basis of these things. That okay. that really is it. I love knowing. I want to understand what is going on in the brain, you know, during mind wandering, during dreaming, during imagination. Understanding the similarities and the differences between these highly overlapping types of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of a personal interest is is what's what's happening in the brain. Yep. Right. But I but in addition, I also want to know kind of on, a, on a, a level that applies to all of us. I think that oftentimes when people think of things like, like thought and especially imagination, people think, oh my gosh, you can't, you can't research that. It's crazy. <laughs> Dreams and imagination are crazy. Like yeah. it's just too crazy. You can't, you can't do it's it. It's like some Charlie in the Chocolate Factory Willy Wonka it, shit. Yeah. Exactly. Like people tend to think you you can't you can't research that that's mm-hmm. i mean our imaginations like what you can't even predict what's happening well i would argue that actually imagination while on one hand it's kind of characterized by the fact that you're generating new things that are unpredictable a big part of of what interests me in imagination is actually that it's more similar across people than people often think mm. because we often if you think about it imagination is coming from our our past experiences yep. and as humans on earth mm-hmm. like we we have similar experiences and this right. shapes this shapes our cognition mm-hmm. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of cultural influence as well within the way mm. that you imagine things or the way that you think, right? It's mm-hmm. all shaped by, like you said, it's shaped by your perception of the world. Yes. And so if you share a similar perception of the world or same culture, uh, you're probably going to see a lot of similarities within this imagination and mind wandering and thought, right? Mm-hmm. And I think kind of the, the, the summarizing point of all of this and mm-hmm. really what, what drives my, my, my interest in these topics 
is that so frequently, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's often thought that thoughts are so unpredictable, imagination is unpredictable, it's just you just can't predict it. But at the at the neural level, in terms of the brain areas that overlap with memories of what we've actually experienced, and also the brain basis of imagining, which has actually been researched in a lab. These area, these brain areas overlap. And I think that makes a lot of sense because we imagine based on what we know. And in this int- very interesting kind of counterintuitive way, I think that imagination is a lot more predictable than people often think. And that and I'm interested in knowing sort of across people what are what are the what are the limitations of imagination? Um, while the specific contents might change, what are the parameters that sort of constrain imagination such that we all imagine, you know, what, what are the similarities and differences across people, essentially, okay. when, when imagining? And so how would you, and again, this is like the point you made, like you can't, you can't measure imagination and people think it's like <laughs> it's impossible to measure. Mm-hmm. How would you go about measuring the First off, the content, because you're saying you want to look at the difference between uh, content in the way that Kyle imagines things and I imagine things and you imagine things, mm-hmm. uh, and then how our brains are also functioning at the same time, right? The actual dynamics of the brain during those uh, during those imagination periods where you're imagining things. How do you go about measuring that? Is it through fMRI? Is it through like EEG? Like, how are you going about that? Or how do you plan to go about that? Okay, so this actually relates to the work I'm doing right now. Um, so the way that you would, the way that you examine it um, is, first of all, you have to use, you have to sort of ask people, you know, what's on your mind? Experience sampling, right? That's, that's the, the, what the method is called. So I use experience sampling um, where we sort of say to the participants, you know, tell me everything that's on your mind. Actually, it's, it's a specific type of experience sampling. It's, it's called descriptive experience sampling. But the main idea is that the person just literally tells you everything that's on their mind. Okay. And so you can sort of see the contents that you wouldn't normally be able to see unless you ask them. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part of examining imagination and mm-hmm. the, co- the contents of thought in general. Um, so the second thing in, ter- in terms of sort of sort of a, um, I guess a, a way of looking at imagination is if you, if you know that memory and imagination overlap, both in terms of your subjective experience of it, what you see in your mind, and also in in terms of overlapping patterns of brain activity. If you think about how we remember things, and you think about concepts and how we sort of, we don't just, not only do we remember specific events, but we also learn how to kind of extract general patterns of what we, of all these different, seemingly widely different things that we've experienced and we sort of categorize them. You know, categorization is, a, is kind of a basic principle of the mind. Mm-hmm. In the same way that category, we, we learn to categorize in our memory, if you can use that, the, the way that the, I guess I guess the way to say it is sort of um, like the brain naturally wants to map things. Mm-hmm. And because those same brain areas are active during imagination, you can sort of reverse engineer what's happening in the mind. If you think of imagination in terms of categories, you can actually break apart the contents of people's thoughts. So frequently we imagine scenes, something called scene construction. Mm-hmm where you see sort of in it, you have an environment, people, objects, and events. You can imagine these things. Well, we also, ha- where does that come from? Well, we see it every day yeah. in our perception. I mean, thinking of like stereotypes uh, and other things like that, you're mm-hmm. essentially, as a human, it's easier to categorize something as a large group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people in this group, in group A, generally will do this. And that's a stereotype. And that's honestly just a, the simplest way, or it's it's the easiest way with the limited amount or the least amount of barriers to categorize something to make it make sense in your brain. So to mm-hmm. me, that made sense. The, the brain is always looking for a shortcut. Yeah, exactly. And that's what makes it such a f- a fabulous computer is that it it is constantly looking for new and and different ways of categorizing information and and skipping over. Uh, skipping over some some facts in order to 
better amalgamate something within a particular category and, mm-hmm. and 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 then when you start deviating from those patterns of categorization that's when you get into more difficulty and and that's why you know something like stereotypes are so prevalent right yeah because it requires um you know it requires your brain to actually alter the way it's functioning it's easier to to stereotype a whole group of individuals and say this is generally how they'll act so whenever mm-hmm. they do act that way it makes sense and, and that's why your brain's like oh that's what they do exactly but it's harder to be like oh every person is different regardless of what group they're in it doesn't it's not easier for your brain to do that yeah yeah. They're called heuristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I should say that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, That's exactly it. Schemas. Schemas. Heuristics. heuristics. Exactly. These are mental shortcuts that we make and mm-hmm. take and design. We're specifically building these shortcuts um, so, that we can, so that we can compute more easily. And then we can also predict the future. And so this is a really important thing to to is at an evo, from an evolutionarily an ev- evolutionary standpoint. Yeah. What is what are we always trying to do? Well, as humans, we we want to predict the future. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot and there's been a lot of research on this recently as well. Is that you know going once again going back to the idea that imagination isn't just restricted to creativity. Imagination allows us to literally plan for the future. It's a very adaptive function. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have imagination to plan for the future, you'd just be repeating the past over and over and over again, which is completely right. maladapted. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this then relates to clinical psychology, which is a whole other area <laughs> that we won't go into. Yeah, You know, what I'm doing is basic science. It's sort of like, what is happening in everyday people? And if we know what's happening in everyday people, we can know more about sort of the... the the heights of human flourishing, like creativity and, mm-hmm. and art. But we can also know what's happening in more maladaptive thinking, like which would apply to clinical psychology. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's really interesting and in, and in hearing what the methodology of, of how you would approach imagination. It's actually quite funny because uh, it makes us sound a lot boring, more boring as humans because you are you have to categorize this right. Everybody's not super unique. No one's a special <laughs> snowflake. We're all right. impacted by the same things and culture does impact us and you can categorize Mm -hmm. imagination which i think the word itself just kind of seems like it's it's on its own (laughs) everybody people have imagination are just so unique and creative but no (laughs) we're not that we all have imagination yeah we all have imagination and and it can can be categorized uh and that's how we can come up with these questions and and answers right Mm -hmm. and and the way that you're approaching it is very interesting Mm -hmm. all right and with that, let's uh, let's head into our brain break. Let's take a moment, refresh ourselves, fill your glasses, and uh, we'll come back and we'll talk to Yvette about some myths, misconceptions, and some history of the science. That's lovely. That's lovely. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys on the other side. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. the break going into myths misconceptions in any of the area that areas that you work in so mind wandering dreaming or uh imagination is there a myth or misconception that a lot of people believe in there's so many (laughs) but if i had to pick one i'd say that probably the most popular myth and misconception is the idea that dreams are quote unquote symbolic and um, that dreams are that dreams require interpretation, okay. some kind of special interpretation. Okay. So you're telling me if I'm like drowning in my dream, mm-hmm. that I shouldn't be associating that water symbolically as <laughs> it's I, not uh, symbolic of our graduate student careers <laughs> <laughs> of me drowning in my <laughs> in my research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so don't do that. Is right. what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. But a lot of people tend to want to do that or want a lot of people want to do it right and so why has that uh what has kind of perpetuated that that myth uh do you think 
So this is a, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no clear answer to this. So part of this is speculation, but mm-hmm. part of it is based on actual historical facts. Mm-hmm. So this sort of originated, um, I mean, who knows how early it originated, because written history, we don't know. <laughs> we only know as much as it has been written. Mm-hmm. But we do know, you know, way back in the day, um, ancient Egyptians, okay, bringing it back to the ancient Egyptians. Beautiful. Damn. They thought that dreams were messages sent from the gods. Mm-hmm. So there was this idea that dreams are, are this power, these powerful messages sent from the gods. Fast forward to the 19th century, Freud, Sigmund Freud and Jung. Our boy. Great guys. But. <laughs> but. <damn> it. <laughs> I've already Love railed them. against both of them. Okay, have you? Okay. <laughs> At least Freud. <laughs> Great guys, pioneers, a lot of fantastic ideas. Um, they sort of, in attempts to be more scientific, they, they came up with this idea that dreams are now messages, not from the gods, but from an equally powerful and omnipotent unconscious. So sort of the same, the same line of thinking that dreams are more special or more profound than our waking thoughts. And this, this is a huge myth, and it's one that so many people have thought of. I mean, at some point, I even believed in that. Mm-hmm. But then when you really start thinking about it, you're like, wait a minute here. What, what did they mean? What did they really mean by that? What is this idea that dreams are symbolic? And to, to this day, if you, just, if you go to Amazon.com, you'll see hundreds of dream dictionaries mm-hmm. that that oh no <laughs> yes that offer to to decode the meaning of your dreams mm-hmm. and so they'll say things like a cat means you know this this thing like mm-hmm. cat means intuition or something yeah. and actually unfortunately as tempting as it is to believe those things there's absolutely no evidence that that's true okay good to know let's just cut that one right off Yvette, I think when you are talking about dreams and our desire to kind of interpret them, mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of struck by this idea that we're trying to infer meaning from something. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's as simple as you know we want to understand what the heck is going around on around us and mm-hmm. within us, and nobody actually knows why we dream. Mm-hmm. Even dream scientists don't know why we dream. So it's natural to try to understand it. And I think that throughout history, there's been various attempts to try to understand what the heck are our dreams. And the most, you know, the most modern interpretation is, well, dreams are an extension of waking thought. They might not seem like it, but they are in the sense that they're often, dreams often incorporate memories that we've experienced, mm-hmm. not exact replications of things we've experienced, but usually a mixture of memories and, and it's sort of, you sort of dream of novel things. We dream of, of um, sometimes seemingly bizarre events and, and, and dreams just seem weird. Mm. Just on, you know, on a, on a subjective level, they seem weird. And so we're, we're just trying to, I think we're, it's as simple as we're trying to understand what, where is that coming from? And nobody really knows. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I mean the myth, it kind of stands up on its own own legs because people, like Kyle said, and like you said, people want to have, a, they want to associate some sort of meaning to what they're thinking mm-hmm. or what they're, they remember themselves dreaming about, right? Mm-hmm. I always wanted to, again, I did the exact same. I, I wanted to kind of interpret what my dreams meant mm-hmm. or what am I, what I am I thinking? I think we've about? all been there. Yeah, If we're course. really honest with ourselves, especially in psychology, we've all been there. Yeah. We try, we want to know what's going on. Yeah. And so like, dreams. is it, what was I thinking about? Like, so the way that I would interpret it would be, what was I thinking about before I went to bed? Uh, was it an exam coming up? Was mm-hmm. it, uh, was it deadlines? Was it money? What was, what was it? Right. Uh, was I stressed about a family member? Things like that. And then, trying to interpret that based on what was in my dream. It could just very well be that I was thinking about this before I went Mm -hmm. to bed and now I'm associating with what I was thinking uh, when I wake up because I'm also thinking about it when I wake up. (laughs) Exactly. And that, that sort of illustrates, you know, what I was saying earlier about the continuity between our waking thoughts and dreams. Oftentimes dreams are thought to be completely distinct from our waking thoughts and it's understandable because they sort of seem that way. They're they're actually more emotional a lot of times. 
Um, they seem more emotional, more engaging. We don't have awareness of the external world while we're sleeping. So it's almost like you're sort of trapped in your imagination, right? You're dreaming and, and you're, you're very absorbed. People have talked about the kind of immersive self-absorption in dreams. And so they just seem really weird. And so there's this tendency to kind of think, well, they must be so different than our thoughts. But actually, you know, sort of my own thinking about the topic and sort of recent conceptualizations of it is that dreams are an extension of our waking thoughts. They might not seem it for various reasons because they are different than our waking thoughts, but they have a lot of similarities with them as well. Right. So uh, if you're analyzing your stress and, and kind of thinking back about what's going on in your head unconsciously through, the, through your dreams uh, and it's serving a benefit to you, is that a bad thing in the end? I think the way that I see it, it could be good if you're if you're trying to reflect on the, what you're thinking about before bed, but not really putting too much. Uh, I don't know, too many eggs in one basket where it's like, oh, my dreams are out of my control, and what what I have to whatever my dreams telling me through this uh, dream book analysis book that I'm reading is now it's like it almost sounds like horoscopes to me, mm-hmm. uh, where you put too much weight on what's your sign uh taurus how about you kyle pisces okay why the hell do i know this (laughs) i'm a a scorpio scorpio see total scorpio move (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly right i have no clue in a a future episode we'll talk about horoscopes we do talk about horoscopes yeah uh it comes up in uh our episode about uh teaching with dr ben chung yeah teaching with dr ben chung yeah. Teaser. Um, Future episode yeah. teaser. So, I so mean, to return to your question. Yeah, to return to my question. <laughs> Sorry. Completely I like that random segue. It's great. Um, what do you suggest that people do when it comes to dream? How, how should people a- a- address their okay. dreams? Should they, should they interpret them or should it just be uh, a dream's a dream and let it be? Yeah, that's, that's, um, it's an excellent question because you can't just say don't interpret your dreams. Everybody's going to think about their dreams if, if you remember your dreams. So here's kind of, you know, this is somewhat prescriptive, right? So nobody has to actually take this advice. There's, if, if you think about thoughts, so if you think about the fact, so, you know, in the past people have said, well, dreams contain a hidden meaning that you have, you need an expert to decode them. There's no evidence for that at all. It's actually very tempting to think of that, but it's not true. But what there is evidence for is that dreams do contain very frequently, like our, our emotions, things that we're feeling during the day, our thoughts, memories, things we want for the future. And, and even outside of research, just on a personal level, I mean, I see this all the time. And I, I, I really think that, that, that that's the case. Um, but you, if you think about thoughts, if you think about dreams as thoughts, in the same way that I think you should introspect upon you know, your life and things you're thinking about, I think actually thinking about your dreams, if you treat them as thoughts, even if they might be kind of wacky thoughts, right? There's a lot of imagination going on. 98% of our dreams are novel simulations of reality. They're not actual memories of the past, although they do incorporate fragments of our memories. Um, even if they seem bizarre, if you treat dreams as thoughts, I think it's just as worth reflecting on our dreams as it is reflecting upon our thoughts. So in the end, I do think dreams are meaningful in the sense that they relate to our waking memories, imagery, concerns, and things that we, things that we care about. It's a really interesting myth, and it's a good, it's a good, it's a really good point. Um, I mean, dream, dream analysis, go. very I interesting. Like yeah. yeah, so let's go to our, like, we are, it's very, it's poorly named, but we're going to go with it for now. It's Cocktail Facts or... I love uh, it. Cocktail yeah. Party. Cocktail Party. We're going to call it Cocktail Party. Um, this is where we kind Everybody of Everybody get a drink and then let's go. Are you talking right now? No, I'm, I'm saying just generally. Oh. Just get, uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. But these, they could be listening to it in the morning. Okay. I would say it's never too early. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, might be irresponsible. <laughs> so, so we call this segment cocktail party essentially mm-hmm. because we want to kind of, if anything, if you don't retain any of the knowledge that we've talked about up until this point, we want to at least give you some sort of fact or trivia information that you can pull out at the next party or the ne- or by the water cooler or or whatever. 
So we ask our guests to bring some sort of fact or trivia point that they want to bring in that people could relay to others, uh, to sound smart or to just to bring up conversation. Impress the significant other. Impress the significant other. Or a future significant other. Ooh. So, so what, what little cocktail party fact do you have for us today, Yvette? Roughly 50% of our waking thoughts are occupied by mind wandering. Really? Mm-hmm. What? What, what, what? So how, how is that measured? I'm interested in, in like, is that just like a analysis of, of thought? Like, how is that? How is it measured? Yeah. How's the frequency measured? Yeah. If you, really cool. if you probe people's, um, it was first measured by Gilbert and colleagues at Harvard University. They probed people's thoughts throughout the day using smartphone experience sampling. Smartphone thought, thought probing, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And they found that 50%, uh, roughly 50% of the time, um, people were mind-wandering, essentially. Right. So throughout the day, they were asked, what were you just thinking about? Mm -hmm. And then they would report, mm -hmm. and it would be some sort of mind-wandering 50% of the time. Exactly. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have more That's so cool. <laughs> I have more percentages where that came from. Oh, let's see. Let's oh, hear the yes. percentages. We'd yes. love to hear them. Yeah. Okay. So, going to going to the topic of dreaming. Mm -hmm. So people often think that you you only dream in REM sleep. This is uh, yet another myth, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's reasons for this historically, but uh, we actually dream in every stage of sleep, but in different different degrees. So, we dream in REM sleep. 80 to 100 percent of the time okay. meaning that 80 to 100 percent of the time that you wake someone up from REM sleep they will report a dream but in non-REM sleep which includes non-REM 1 non-REM 2 and slow wave sleep people will dream anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of the time which is a very wide um some wide variance yeah wide range <laughs> there. wide, wide range, there's yeah. a wide range but it depends on the study, but various studies have shown that we actually also dream in non-REM sleep as well. That's interesting. Yeah, and to I, a lesser degree. That's but. definitely another like, misconception. So mm -hmm. exactly. uh, a lot of people Lots say, oh, you, you only dream in REM, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily true. Yeah, it's great. I mean, thank you for the, the myths and the cocktail facts, the cocktail mm -hmm. party facts, or the water cooler facts, wherever you're going to be whipping those out next time you have a conversation with somebody. The water hole. The water hole. The yeah, water hole. Typical water hole fact. <laughs> Just getting the old water from the watering hole. Hashtag edit. <laughs> I think oh we'll God. keep that. I think we'll keep I that. I think one. you should keep it. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, the, at the end of this, we also want to kind of get an idea of what got you interested into psychology or what got mm -hmm. you into the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, so just quickly, like, what was... Uh, what was the draw to psychology? So why did you get into psychology? Well, um, I mean, part of it was probably familial influence. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom is, works in the psychology field. She's actually, she's a guidance counselor. Okay. And she had this huge bookshelf full of amazing books on psychology, medicine, anatomy. And actually from a really early age, I would, I would try to read these books. And I would scour the depths of consciousness. <laughs> but really, I had no idea what I was reading <laughs> in elementary school, we'll say. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, what is going on here? And I, I just, I guess it's hard to say where it originated, but I've always been really interested in consciousness, things that we think about. Mm -hmm. And um, so this sort of eventually emerged into an interest in sort of the inner experiences that we have. Mm -hmm. And also I had an interest in biology, uh, the brain basis of our psychology. Great, and that, and that was like the follow-up question essentially was what got you into specifically mind-wandering and dreaming, right? Mm -hmm. And imagination, knowing you, knowing you well is that <laughs> you, you very much are, you do encompass or encapsulate the mind-wandering researcher where you're always thinking critically and then you i'm talking to you and then you say hold on a second i'm having a thought mm -hmm. and then you go a different direction but it's a direction that was loosely connected but i didn't catch it so i mean mm -hmm. you are definitely in the right area of research <laughs> i can that's uh, where yeah i can affirm that guarantee i that have she a lot of experience it. with mind wandering yeah i mean you have to, uh, and again 
I think this is a common trend within the work that we are within the, the guests that we have on. Everyone has some sort of connection to the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as you'll see, as we go forward in the next few episodes or in, in all the coming episodes, there's a reason why people are doing the work they're doing. There, there's some sort of connection to it. There's, they're interested in the work they're doing mm-hmm. and it has some real world implications in, in, in most of the researchers lives. Yes. And, you know, I would say sort of the, the summary of, you know, every, everybody's reasons for why they get into something is often some long, long story, right? But mm-hmm. the summary, the summary really is, I've always, my entire life, I've always been interested in, in our inner experiences, our subjective experiences, and like what leads to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it was having family in, in the field of psychology, and, you know, some families in the medical field, in biology, the other part is that, you know, prior, prior to studying cognitive neuroscience and studying these things, I was a performing artist. I was a musician. Mm-hmm. I, I studied at, at a music school at the Berklee College of Music, and I am also a creative artist as well. And I, with an interest in what was going on in consciousness and in the mind, I, I was con- while I was creating, I was sort of analyzing my process and... Just everything I think about really in life, I always re- kind of link back to the brain. Like, well, what's going on in the brain when this is happening? Mm-hmm. And in the end, that's cog- that's what cognitive neuroscience is. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I That feels like the perfect spot to call it. So it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again. Absolutely. Well, Thank thanks you. so much, you guys, for mm-hmm. inviting me. Oh, yeah. it's been an absolute blast. Um, so with that, we'll call it an episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can find previous episodes on iTunes and Google Play. You can find us on brainbuzzpodcast.com, where you can also find some more information about today's episode, including any pertinent articles or ideas that, uh, that we decide might be worth sharing with the world. You can also find a little bit more about Yvette, how to find her, uh, where to find her. Yvette, we're talking, what, Twitter, email? Where can mm-hmm. we find you? Where can people contact yeah. you? You can find me on Twitter. I can't even remember my Twitter name. I think it's Gravelin Yvette. It might be reverse. No. Something, something no, like that. No, it is that. that it I is take that? Gravelin Kyle Yvette. knows. Gravelin Yvette. Gravelin Yvette. Yvette Gravelin was taken, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? What? I know. It's unbelievable. You probably created that account, forgot. Can't get back into it. And <laughs> that's I that's pro- probably what happened. My mind wandered. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't remember. Yeah. And the other place is um, Yvette.Gravelin at psych.ubc.ca okay and uh we'll include that information on our website as well with your bio uh so that people can contact you uh shoot you emails and you guys can talk more about i imagine a lot of things within dreaming imagination thought there's there's lots there (laughs) uh yeah again we want uh oh yeah new format new format we're trying this out we really hope that you guys can give us some some critical feedback uh we have had multiple episodes recorded previously, so uh, if you guys like this format, we will adjust it for the future episodes, uh, but you will see older formats as well. Yeah. We, we had a lot of good guests on uh, that have taken longer to edit, so... Yeah, we're uh, going to... I guess we'll mix in we'll mix in sort of some of the old format um, and going forward we'll record in this new, this new way, assuming people enjoy it. If you do, if you don't, send us an email you can contact us directly on brainbuzzpodcast.com we've got our email a uh, little comment form section there that you can fill in send us an email you can also contact us on any other social media platform that you have found desirable let us know what you thought um we want to kind of maintain this format going forward we think it's really productive and, and helpful uh not only to not only for our listeners but also our guests in preparation so yvette Yvette had a very quick turnaround with this episode, so thank you. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> uh, and I guess we'll say good night. Thank you all for listening. Uh, until next time, cheers. Everyone has had a dream that they're flying. Of course we have. And everyone has had a dream that their teeth are falling out. 
Oh, really? Oh. Have I, I actually had that? haven't. Maybe had not. That. But I've, that's frequent. What about the the falling dream? I've had that. Everybody yes. has a falling dream. Yes. Okay, so another... Is it upon falling asleep? A Hypnagogic a imagery? A myth that I may be perpetuating in my own life. <laughs> Don't do it. When you're dreaming... <laughs> And you fall in your dream. Mm-hmm. Oh God! Is that you because see. you're falling in real life? Because I've had a couple situations where I've <laughs> dreamt that I was falling, and, then you and woke I woke up, up mid-fall off the, the couch. <laughs> wow! Yeah, is that um, true? That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that is not something I've ever experienced in my entire life. Okay, we don't have. Is to it true? I think it's only true for Drake. Mm. Sample <laughs> size Drake of facts. sample size of one. Okay, Drake. The validity's off the charts. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. perfect. So very robust. Uh, well, and apparently it has really good test retest reliability <laughs> as well. <laughs> We've I done think, it multiple times. I think it's happened twice in my life, uh, but that's also me remembering. Wait, specifically, it's it's like confirmation bias in the sense where I'm like I'm confirming an idea that I have in my head. Do you ever get the one where when you're falling uh, and then you like wake up and it it feels like you've just like fall into bed and sometimes mm-hmm. you like twitch. Absolutely. Yeah, like, Hyp- hypnagogic imagery is very common to oh. dream of falling. The second you fall asleep to dream of falling, it happens all the time. And it, wait, and it shocks you back up mm-hmm. and wakes you up. And then you're like, oh, you freak out. You kind of oh. tweak out, right? You wake up. <laughs> happens all the you time. Kick your partner. Oh, jeez. Oh, sorry, babe. And <laughs> Kyle, uh, so sorry. Kyle's exactly. told me multiple times where he's had dreams where he was like, jumped into a waterfall or jumped into a pool of water and then he peed himself. I told you that in confidence. <laughs> <laughs> that- and now everyone knows. <laughs> and now I know. And I'm, in, I'm analyzing asking it and interpreting it. Asking for a friend it. kind of situation. Yeah. Listen, if I'm asking for a friend and that friend is Drake, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what does this mean? 